0: We have a couple of announcements. First of all, just a reminder to all you men, try to invite somebody else uh, for the men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning, uh, 7.30. So we may have a lot of carbs, we may have pancakes and biscuits and gravy and who knows what else. So just be ready. We'll have a big time. All right, and some of you... No, Gary Phillips, who went to Baraka for many years and then for about the last 20 or so went over to Pine Valley. And uh, Alan and I were talking about it when we first started the church about 17, 18 years ago, uh, that Gary and a number of other men, all of whom have now gone to be with the Lord, uh, used to meet for breakfast once a week. And I think... Um, you know, Alan and I, and maybe one or two others who are still here, uh, are about the only ones left of that group. But Gary went to be with the Lord a couple of days ago, and his service is going to be this Saturday at 1 p.m. at Pine Valley Bible Church. So make a, make a note of that. That's the only only announcements. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. As we walk with the Lord by means of our walk with the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, we can still sin. And when we do, we're no longer walking in light but in darkness. We're not abiding in Christ, and we're not walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the flesh. So the way to recover is to confess sin just in silent prayer, admitting to God our sins, and instantly we're forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and after a few moments I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege to come together, to be with other believers, focusing upon your word, desiring to learn your word, to partake of the unadulterated milk of the word that we may grow. Father, it is our desire to grow and mature spiritually, that we might live to serve you and that we might do it in a way that glorifies you and honors you. And Father, we thank you for your word, and that as we study your word, it just creates a further and further hunger for truth, for your word. The more we learn, the more we realize we have to learn, and we uh, know so little. So Father, open our eyes to the truth tonight as we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, we're continuing our study in Judges 3, seven dealing with the issue that they forgot God and what that meant, the implications of a culture forgetting God. And as I pointed out last time, it's not like when you get up in the morning and can you can't remember where you put your wallet last night or where you put your purse or where your glasses are, your sunglasses are. It is a volitional act of disdain or disrespect for God where you're acting as if God isn't there as if God doesn't exist and if we're not as if we're not accountable to God and this isn't somebody else that does this but every single one of us have done this more than once today because this is what happens when we sin and that is uh it may not be as significant or serious as going after the uh Baals and the Asherah, but it is just as spiritually rebellious, and that is what we are studying in this passage. So we have gone through the first section through verse six, and now we're looking at verse seven and its implications for this is laying the groundwork for our the introduction of our very first judge Othniel and so we see that the, this whole story here in judges is a focus on how a nation how a culture how a people turn from god and become paganized and it doesn't just all happen overnight but it takes a process and with each successive generation, it just gets uh, worse, and the consequences are more profound. Verse 7 reads, And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asher, Asherahs. should be Asheroth, the O-T-H is just the Hebrew Uh, plural, feminine plural, so it should be Baalim and the Asherah, or it should be the Baals and the Asherahs, one or the other, but keep them both in English. I don't know why translators do something like that. Uh, It reminded me of something I learned today that we'll get back to, we'll come across it eventually, but I learned a new grammatical term today, uh, I'm going through, uh, I've mentioned this a few times, I'm taking a first-year Hebrew course. And it's amazing, and it's teach, taught by an Israeli, and it's interesting the things that you forget because you learn all little rules and everything in first year. But I've, every now and then I pick up some real insights. And for years I have made the point that in Genesis 2.17, when when God says to Adam that in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Now, there were Old Testament scholars, Jean, uh, not Gene Merrill, but Merrill Unger, who taught at Dallas Seminary in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, would translate that, dying you shall die, because it's a, what's an infinitive co- construct plus a, a a regular verb. And you will even in a few places where that occurs in the Hebrew text, you will find it translated something like that, going you go, you went, or something like that, where it puts an ing on the first use. What it is in the Hebrew, it takes two words, one's an infinitive construct of the same word, and then that word is in a main verb. And it, as I've said this, you've heard me say this for years, it shouldn't be translated like that. It, it is an idiom, for you will certainly, or you will surely die, or you will indeed, you will die. It is emphatic. It is, so it, it can't be physical death, which so many people take it to be, because it, it is distinguished by this distinctive construction that is actually called a tautological infinitive. There, you've got a new grammatical term tautology is a repetition so all that term means is you've got a repetitive uh, infinitive it repeats the same uh, same word but in the form of an infinitive and you have quite a few of them in scripture when God is really trying to uh, trying to make a point point. and so it, it's so much fun to learn these things and to observe things in context Because when we use the word evil, we usually apply it to um, a huge range of things that we dislike or that we think are terribly wrong. But when the Bible uses the word evil, it tends to have a more restrictive meaning. And we see that, I've mentioned this a few times recently, evidenced in this passage. There's basically two things that that is said here two things that are said about israel that they first of all did evil in the sight of the lord now what's important about that is it's evil it's not evil in the sight of man it's evil in the sight of the lord the lord is the standard it is his righteousness that is the standard of his character and his justice is the application of that standard and so when it says it's evil in the sight of the Lord, they are violating an absolute standard which exists in the character of God. And it is defined by the subsequent phrase, which is actually the second thing that is said, they forgot the Lord their God and served. They, they go together, two sides of the same coin. They forgot the Lord their God and they served uh, the Baalim and the Asherahs. Now, what's interesting here is that this uh, phrase, to do evil in the sight of the Lord, is used 110 times in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. 110 times, and they are grouped together, uh, used, I think, six times in the book of Judges. I think it's used over 30 times just in first and second kings, describing the kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord, and it's almost always followed by the phrase of serving uh, an idol, worshipping an idol, for example, background to judges would be numbers and deuteronomy in numbers thirty two thirteen the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, that is his uh, judicial wrath. His anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. What was the evil that they did that was so evil? The golden calf. It's idolatry, and what flowed from that idolatry. And That wasn't the only example of idolatry that occurred uh, during the, the wilderness years. In Deuteronomy 4.25, which is in the, as we looked at last time, I mentioned this, it's in the historical prologue of Deuteronomy, showing that the commands of God are not divorced from real history. We'll talk more about history tonight. But the commands of God are grounded in history. They're not just uh, some sort of autonomous... Uh, ideals hanging out there in Plato's cave. Now you have to have a little background to laugh at that joke. You know Plato's truth. You only saw shadows in the cave to get truth, and it's, it was his idealism. Um, in Deuteronomy four twenty five, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything, and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. So what the context is, is a warning all through Deuteronomy 4, 4, 5, and 6, a warning against idolatry. And at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, for I know that after my death you will become, here's Moses prophesying, he knows what they're going to do, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter days "...because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands." And so there are a number of different places throughout, um, throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, that define this evil as serving these false gods or continuing in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's, that's just a chorus all the way through the uh, uh, telling of the the stories of the kings of the north, after Jeroboam, remember he set up a golden calf in Bethel, and then he set up another golden calf in Dan, and set up a place to worship the golden calf there. So the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Devot, was idolatry, was worshiping uh, the golden calf. And, but there's two places, I looked through all 110 uses, and there's one place where it's a little different, but it still relates to idolatry. It's not physical idolatry, though, it's an idolatry of the soul, where we are worshiping ourselves, putting ourselves in the position of God, and then making those decisions. Jeremiah 18.10 uh, God saying, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. So evil in my sight is equated and explained as uh, not obeying God's voice. To disobey God is an act of idolatry. Psalm 51.4, by disobeying God in terms of the commandment to not commit adultery... Uh, David ha- confesses and he says he has done this evil in your sight. And so these tell us that ultimately, uh, evil is, is it may be expressed through, in the ancient world, uh, through these concrete, and I use that not as a, like cement, but I'm using it in, in contrast to abstract. Uh, concrete idols of wood, stone, or metal. But uh, in these cases, it's an, the abstract idol of idolizing our own desires, our own lusts, and following following after them. So we have this word that we uh, looked at last time, that is the word shaha that means to forget, to ignore to not take into account something or to intentionally disregard, disdain, or reject God. And this is a very, very strong statement because th- to do this, a person has to go into a certain amount of self-deception to forget God, to forget what God has done in the past, to think of what happens psychologically there at the base of Mount Sinai when the Israelites are following Aaron and he builds a golden calf and says, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. They have just been, just two or three weeks before this, they have been slaves in Egypt and they were observing all of God's miraculous judgments against Israel and the parting of the Red Sea and now they are saying that it is this golden calf who did it. So you have to be somewhat delusional and psychologically messed up in order to trick yourself into such a way of thinking, of denying what you know to be true in order to uh, follow uh, some sort of fantasy. For That's, that's what it is. It, that's the illustration of what Paul describes in Romans 1, as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And to fully understand that, we have to understand it in light of a previous similar statement in Judges uh, two seven and 2.12. 2.7 is positive. The people of Joshua's generation served the Lord. And I pointed out that there are quite a few people ...who have said to be servants of the Lord, that they serve the Lord. You have Abraham as a servant of the Lord. Moses is a servant uh, servant of the Lord. Joshua is a servant of the Lord. Uh, Job is a servant of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah is a servant of the Lord. The Messiah is the ultimate servant of the Lord. That's Isaiah 51 through Isaiah 66... And so this is a very high accolade indeed, that one is a servant of the Lord. And it indicates that you have given yourself uh, to God. That doesn't mean you don't sin. David is called a servant of the Lord, and he sinned pretty egregiously. But God said that he had a heart after him. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and then verse 12 says, then they abandoned God. That's a better translation of the word azab that is there. They abandoned the Lord, God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. See, they're denying history. They're forgetting what God has done. They're forgetting the history, and they go into uh, historical revisionism, as I uh, illustrated it last time, you have both Aaron and then later Jeroboam and many, many others along the way who were setting up the golden calves and saying this was the God who brought them out of, out of Egypt. That is the beginning of historical, uh, historical revisionism. So we talk some about the consequences of that, which is uh, about where I stopped the last time. And we have to recognize that how important history is. Now, I know there's still some of you, maybe, that uh, you don't get too excited about studying history. You think of it as just a lot of facts, and you think of it as a lot of dates, and just uh, you don't see its significance or relevance. But I can't tell you, and some of you have the same experience, how many people over the years have told me how they hated history until they became a believer and until they became interested in the Word of God. And then all of a sudden they realized that history wasn't just this random collection of facts and dates and information, but it was telling the story of God's plan in human history. And all of a sudden, it became interesting. They wanted to know because the prophecies of the Bible are all about historical events that actually happened, especially when you get into the prophecies of Daniel. And you want to learn about, well, who are the Babylonians? And who were the Medes and the Persians? And who are the Greeks? And who are the Romans? And you need to learn all that in order to appreciate what's going on in the Gospels. And then uh, after that, if you get interested in history after that, then it wakes you up to the importance of the history of Christianity and church history because that is the continuation of the story that ends uh, at the end of the book of Acts and so it's important to study history because history is what it grounds everything once you start denying history or rewriting history the result is that 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 always goes with that is the loss of truth and once you lose history and you lose truth you lose god because you have abandoned god in the process and that's ultimately what happened uh, by the mid 20th century and that became known as the god is dead theology. Uh, they weren't saying what you think they're saying. When they said god is dead, they weren't making a metaphysical judgment that now god has died. They were making a cultural evaluation that god was had been forgotten by the culture and god, god it was as if god was dead because nobody in America cared. And that was, that was the essence of the God is dead, uh, dead theology. It's always interesting, one of the pr- uh, foremost promoters of that was a Harvard theologian by the name of Paul Tillich, who was quite well known back in the 50s and 60s, very, very liberal. When he died, they discovered that at the time he had one of the largest collections in, of pornography in the world. See, this kind of thing goes together. You forget God, then you have no basis for truth, you have no basis for morality, you have no basis for ethics, except whatever makes you uh, you happy. So when we forget God, then in essence we're just uh, canceling uh, the past. And we have to recognize history is that which informs almost all of the other Disciplines you can't study uh, English literature unless you have a grasp of history, and I've mentioned mentioned this before that when I was in um, when I was in in college, uh, I had one last course to take because I actually had two majors and two minors, and I had one last course. If you're if you want to be a teacher in the state of Texas, I don't know if it's still true or not, but back then you had to have a double major. So I had a lot of hours in English, so I thought, well, I just have to take a couple more courses, and then I can I can get my teacher's certificate and graduate, which I did. So that summer I had one last course, and there was a Dr. Wyatt who was teaching it, and she was probably in her 60s, which isn't that old anymore. And white hair... And people told me, you know, I heard all these negative things about her. Now I realize why, because the people that were negative were people who had already been infected by the uh, postmodern, the the nascent postmodern movement that was impacting America in the 60s with the hippies and everything else. And people were just subjectivizing poetry so that it meant whatever you wanted it to mean. And up to that time, I would sit in classes in high school and college and, I would hear all these interpretations of of, uh, of poetry, and how, how do they get that out of out of what's written there? I, I'm just lost. But she believed in a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, and so we learned all about uh, the Lake District, where Wordsworth would go, and Coleridge, and uh, other uh, early British uh, poets, early 19th century British poets. And all of a sudden, everything made sense. She would talk about what they were going through in their life at the time that they wrote a particular work and what that meant, and and it came alive because she was interpreting poetry just like I interpreted the Bible. It It was literal, and it was historical. That's what we mean by historical. We understand that historical framework. So you have the same thing. To understand a lot of mathematics, you have to understand the history of mathematics. Uh, You have to understand the history of music. Now, you can pick up an instrument, you can learn to really play that instrument well and be thought of as an exceptional musician. But if you don't know the history of music, then you've learned that in a vacuum you haven't placed it within its its categories and with its background and and uh, everything so history is important because that is the arena in which god works and moves and speaks and god is the one who acts in history you look at buddhism you look at hinduism you look at islam you look at mormonism you do not have a god who works in history In fact, if you look at at Mormonism, you can't find any of the places in the Book of Mormon on the earth today. They they never existed. There's no evidence of them. But you go go to the Bible and you see all of these places, and we haven't found all of them, but we have found a huge number of those locations. We know exactly where Jesus walked, about 50 feet down from where you're standing when you're out there by the uh, western wall because that's how much sediment has collected over the years. And you stand there and you go into the uh, uh, Temple Mount tunnels that are there, and you go down a few layers. And I had the privilege on one trip uh, about 10, 8 or 9, 10 years ago where we went down about, walked down downstairs about four levels to get down to the very uh, ground level where, uh, which was first century, uh, Jerusalem, but you know when you 're walking around now you 're walking around about thirty or forty feet above the the streets where Jesus and his disciples walked. but we can point to that where there 's evidence you can go to Capernaum, you can go to uh, Magdala, you can go to Bethsaida, and you can see these places and you can go to um, you can go to Megiddo and stand there at Megiddo and overlook the valley of of the Valley of Megiddo, which is called Har-Megiddo, Har, Har, Har the mountain of Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, which is uh, where also called the Valley of Ezralon, where the battle uh, actually to be the staging area for the Armageddon uh, campaign will, will take place. And you can see the area over by Herod Spring, Springs where Gideon thinned out his... Uh, volunteers down to the 300 you can look across at Mount Tabor where Deborah and Barak were gathering their troops to fight the chariot corps of Sisera and you can look over and see Mount Gilboa where Saul was uh, killed Saul was fighting the Philistines, and he committed suicide at the end so they wouldn't take him alive. And you can look over at Mount Carmel where Elijah called fire down from heaven, and you can look down to the Kidron. We'll study about that when we get to Judges chapter 5 and and Deborah's uh, hymn of praise, where she says it became a rushing torrent. God sent a flash flood that wiped out the chariot core of Sisera. And you can look down and you can see the area where uh, Sisera fled and he was exhausted from the battle and he took refuge in the tent of Sisera and he just passed out cold from his exhaustion and she found a massive, a big tent peg and she drove it through his temple. But you can see all of these places. The Bible comes alive because it happened in real history. It's not something that people just made up. God works and moves in the framework of history, so what judges three seven is telling us that this generation forgot God because they had forgotten history, and they were they had forgotten all of the lessons that they had learned uh, just two generations before the deliverance from Egypt, and how God parted the waters. Uh, of of the Red Sea. And they forgot the discipline that God brought on that generation in the 40 years that they had to uh, wander in the the desert. They forgot about the miracles God performed in providing for them and taking care of them as they went through the wilderness. And so they were making things up in place of it. And that is the general uh, modus operandi of human viewpoint. It's when you suppress the truth in unrighteousness, you have to replace it with something. You have to make up other stories. That's what mythology is. It's making up other stories about how everything came into existence because you've rejected the truth. So you're manufacturing your own ideas uh, of history. In paganism, you have to remember that ultimately, without an eternal, infinite, righteous God, there's no basis for values. There is no basis for ethical absolutes. And so as a result of that, everything is relative, including history. And then you can just make up whatever you want to make up uh, to describe uh, what happened in the past. And that's what you see, for example, in some of the ancient literature. You read the Babylonian uh, Gilgamesh epic, which tells the story about the, um, the flood of Noah, uh, but it's it, some of the pieces fit, and a lot of them don't. Noah, uh, the uh, Gilgamesh is the Babylonian Noah, and he builds an ark that is shaped like a cube, which is not seaworthy at all. It'll just twist and turn and flip over and everything else. And you, but you, you see certain residual ideas such as a worldwide flood. And the deliverance of one man that that survive in a somewhat uh, distorted uh, distorted manner. And what has been learned over the years is that if you can successfully and uh, successfully attack and destroy the uh, uh, a nation or a culture's true history, you can destroy that culture. This happened in both the uh, in Russia when you had the Bolshevik Revolution, and it happened in China in the culture in the Chinese Revolution under Mao Zedong in the late uh, the late forties, and it has happened several other times. It happened in Cuba. It's happened in a number of other other places. And uh, that reminds me of a little story. I think it's amusing how God works because we see the providence of God even when we would have done things differently. That I met a lady at one of my Bible conferences and her father was an, a doctor. Uh, the family came, escaped Cuba. And her father was uh, well-known and was very positive and a believer and was in this church church. And he had a roommate in college by the name of Fidel. Came home one day, Fidel was despondent and depressed and was standing on the window ledge about to jump to his death. But he went and saved him. Just think how history would have been different. He regretted that for most of his life. So it's, it's interesting. But today we have all kinds of other groups that are rewriting history. You listen to the leaders of Black Lives Matter. And the thing that it, we have to always remember Satan's lie. You go to Satan's lie in the garden, and what did he say? Did God really say that the, when you eat this, you're going to die? He questions that. And uh, he said, well, it, you know, God just doesn't want you to be like him. Well, there was truth in that. When God said, after Adam and Eve sinned, God said, they have become like us, knowing good and evil. So this is uh, the the lie. The lie, the successful lie, is 99% healthy water and 1% cyanide. The water's not going to hurt you, but that cyanide is going to kill you. And you can buy into something that is 99% true, but it's the 1% that's going to take you out. And so you find in all of these uh, different attempts to overturn governments and foster revolution, you find that there's a certain amount of truth that is there, but that truth that is there is, is controlled by the lie that is there that denies the reality of of history. And so today we face things like the narrative from Black Lives Matter, the narrative of the 1619 Project, uh, which is being replaced. The 1619 Project, if you're not familiar with that, is this pro- project that's been developed by a lot of liberal uh, radicals in New York, in academia, who are claiming that that this 1619 is the date that uh, that defines america because that's when the first chattel slavery came the first slaves were brought here and that's not actually it's not accurate from what i've read number 1 that the first legal chattel that is lifetime slavery was was filed in a court in virginia Later in the 1600s, around the 1650s or 1660s, and the slave owner was a black man, and he was filing because he had an indentured servant, and he wanted to uh, make it a lifetime servitude, and so that's the first case of, um, of where it was a li- became a lifetime a lifetime of slavery. So the 1619 Project is complete historical revisionism, rejecting the importance of the pilgrims and 1620, the significance of the Mayflower Compact. And remember, this last year, I didn't catch this in time, so I didn't cover it, I will this year. Last year, in 2020, we had the 400th anniversary of the signing of the Mayflower Compact. Uh, Compact, and the arrival of the pilgrims uh, in Massachusetts. This year is the 500th, will be the 400th anniversary of Thanksgiving. So I'll be doing a special on that uh, for three or four sessions when we get into, uh, into November. But there's a lot going on there. Uh, and there's a book now called The 1620 Project that is that you can get on Kindle or you can order it but will uh, refute all of the lies that are in the 1619 uh, uh, Project. So we have consequences. And I, let me see here, I've got the wrong slide there. Okay. Uh, what we see is several points here understanding history. First of all, that history is the uh, outworking of God's plan and the purposes of God for human history. Therefore, we have to recognize that history is not subjective. Now, are there certain ideas of history that may be subjective? Yes, there are. See, what happened in history... Is when you got into the late 1700s, you had, as fact, matter of fact, one of the uh, ironic uh, uh, circumstances of history is that in 1776, Immanuel Kant published the Critique of Pure Reason, which in, which instituted the uh, what's called the Copernican revolution of philosophy, and what that meant is. Up to that point, everybody, no matter how they disagreed, you could be a a rationalist, you could be an empiricist, you could be a mystic, but everybody agreed there was objective truth. But Kant came along and said, well, we, we don't really know things as they are in themselves. We only know our impressions of things. And so we all go, "Oh well, you know, there's a certain amount of truth to that. Yeah, but there's a certain amount of falsehood with where he went with that. And that's what sucks people in is there's somebody who come along and they have some little bait on a hook. And, oh, yeah, I I can relate to that. I understand that. Yeah, we just know things as as we see them. And so now you don't know truth at all because you only know your perception of whatever the experience was or everything. So everybody can now uh, eventually has their own truth and they don't really really know truth as objective reality. It's you have your truth because you have your perception. Somebody else has their truth and their perceptions. And they'll say, well, you can't really know history because you look at all these different interpretive frameworks for history. Yes, but the problem is that there's actual things that happened with real flesh and blood people, and they wrote about them. And if you go back and do the research, that's how you do history. You don't read what other historians have said about history. You have to at some level. But you go back and you read the diaries of John Adams. You read the writings of Thomas Jefferson. You go back and you read the writings of Alfred the Great. And you read Lex Rex by uh, Samuel Johnson. And you read all of these things... And that gives you their firsthand accounts from people who lived at that time and that there were real people and real events, and you learn that, there is, that what they said about those things, you don't base it on somebody else's interpretation from other times. So history is the outworking of the plan and purposes of God for human history. Therefore, it's objective And the events of history are rationally and cogently discernible. That is, we as Christians can hold to that because we believe there is a distinction between the creator and the creature. And this is fundamental in understanding uh, everything about the Bible, is God is the creator, and he is totally distinct from his creation. Whereas when you look at all of the pagan religions... God is not distinct from his creation. He's part of it. And so uh, when he's part of it, ultimately you don't have really any external uh, absolutes. And so we depict this in this manner, that you have a line there that represents the hard and fast distance that is between the creator God and his creation. And everything below the line are elements that are in God's creation, just a representative list. You have reason, human reason. You have human experience. But these are interpreted. But how, where you get your grid for interpretation? Well, it's got to come from somewhere. It either comes from the creator or it comes from something inside the creation. And if it comes from something inside the creation, the Bible has a word to describe that. It's called idolatry, because you're using something to replace. It's maybe an idea, maybe a framework, but it's, it's replacing the creator God who has revealed to us what is going on. So we have scientific data. We have historical events. We have values, morals. We have feelings and impressions and intuitions. But as a believer, we understand that everything below the the line is created by the Creator, and therefore He defines it and He explains it. And we have to go to the Scripture to understand how to interpret the details of life. People who interpret on the basis of their feelings are making uh, idols out of their out of their feelings, and out of their emotions. So God is the creator, and he tells us, because God created everything. If you just think about your your own body, you think about your cells, you think about the DNA, you think about the uh, genetic uh, makeup that that is all embedded, all of the coding that is embedded in, in your body. That's why David says we're fearfully and wonderfully made that all of that is there, and, and God oversaw all of that. It's not accident, accidental. It's not something that is just purely random, and that we're told that we are created in the image and likeness of God, so therefore we have value and meaning because we're in God's image. We are created with a purpose from God to represent Him on the planet. Now, we recognize that sin corrupts that, that image, but that doesn't destroy the fact that we have value above and beyond the rocks and above and beyond the uh, single-cell uh, amoebas or above and beyond the more complex life forms. None of them, they may have life and soul life, which is said in Genesis 1, but they're not in the image and likeness of God. That's what distinguishes us from everything else and what makes gives human beings value and importance. And therefore, when we look at history, it has value and importance because it's the story of God's image bearers. And we're to learn from it, and it gives us significance. So what happens if we deny the creator, we're left with just the data, just all of the individual things, and then we have to elevate something there to be the control factor. And that is essentially essentially idolatry. So uh, once we begin to forget God, then what happens is we start looking for something else to replace him, and then we start rewriting history to fit the new narrative. Second point is that since history is the objective arena within which God operates. That means it's real time. It's space-time history. These things truly occurred the way God tells us they occurred or the way somebody else tells us that they occurred. It's, It's real events, and God operates within that. But when we deny it, it destroys objectivity, and that destroys meaning and value for human beings. And this is what's happened over the last... 250 years as these human viewpoint systems of thought have come to dominate, uh, what's happened? Man has gone from being an image bearer of value to where we're just another cog in the machine and people can just manipulate us however they want to uh, through the media and through whatever other uh, means they have. And we see a great example of that, great examples in how the... Uh, communists in the Soviet Union, how the communists in China, how the Nazis in uh, Germany controlled people through the propaganda and the manipulation, and they destroyed the humanity of human beings. So when this happens, the greatest victim is truth and the death of God. One of the greatest historians of the 20th century was Sir Martin Gilbert. Let me tell you a little bit about Martin Gilbert. There are are geniuses, and then there are geniuses, and then there are geniuses above geniuses. I think of Thomas Aquinas, who uh, who could dictate four different technical philosophical texts to four different scribes, and he would give one sentence on one topic to one, turn to the other, and he just remembers and picks up right where he left off with the last sentence he gave that guy, and then he turns over to this third guy, and he starts off on a totally different subject, but he remembers exactly what his line of thinking was and what the next sentence is and dictates it to him, and then turns to the fourth guy, and he's dictating four books simultaneously that's a genius. Gilbert was of that order. He went to Oxford for his undergraduate, was doing postgraduate studies at Oxford when Randolph Churchill, uh, when he was recommended to Randolph Churchill as a detailed historian who could organize all of the papers of his father, Sir Winston Churchill. And so Martin Gilbert was given that task to take all of the papers, diaries, speeches, historical records, everything related to Churchill, and organize them chronologically from his birth to his death. And he did that in 25 volumes, hardback, they're a couple of inches thick. 25 volumes, that that in and of itself is an oppressive accomplishment. But aside from those 25 books, he wrote another 63 books, 88 books in all. He wrote two or three different biographical treatments of Winston Churchill, and he wrote the complete history of World War One. wrote the complete history of World War II. He wrote the history of the Holocaust. He wrote the history of Israel. He produced uh, at least five or six atlases that are about a quarter to... Uh, a half an inch thick that have from 200 to 315 maps in them. Uh, the Rutledge Atlas of the Holocaust. You didn't know you could come up with 315 maps of the Holocaust. He's got the the history of Israel in maps. He's, he's created, he had two or three different books all related to uh, uh, Jewish history. Atlas is related to Jewish history. And it goes on and on and on. You can just uh, search his name as an author on Amazon, and you'll see just how does anybody pr- have that level of production in the detail? I mean, these are not 200-page dime novels or 95-cent, 50-cent novels. When I was a kid, I had a, had a uh, uh, paper route, and I'd get you know, I'd get, or I was cutting grass, I'd get paid 50 cents for cutting the yard, and I'd go down to the bookstore and buy a 50-cent novel. I'd come home and read it, and the next day I'd cut another yard, I'd get 50 cents, I'd go down to the store, and I'd buy another 50-cent book. And these were all about 180 pages. You now these are 300, 400, 500-page books with where a third of the book is footnotes. That's remarkable. This is what he says. On the tomb of the 19th century church historian, Bishop Mandel Creighton, are inscribed the words, he tried to write true history. Now, in 20th century and 21st century America, that, that's they would scoff at that. There's no such thing, they would say, as true history. But Sir Martin Gilbert says, Like the bishop who was a member of my own college at Oxford... I believe that there is such a thing as true history. You can find it, things actually happen, but that has been rejected today. So, my third point here is that with God, thus with God and objectivity removed, the va- vacuum is filled with subjective impressions and feelings created and imposed by man upon creation. That's what happens when you suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And what does Paul go on to say next? And they worship the creature rather than the creator. Thinking themselves geniuses, they became fools, worshiping the creature rather than the, the creator. So this is what happens. You impose this on man. Uh, I mean, you impose your own views, your own subjective feelings upon creation. And this is what has happened in liberal theology. Coming out of the Enlightenment, they realized that the only way to destroy the Bible was to negate its history. If it's not historically accurate, then everything falls apart. That's why Genesis 1 through 11 has always been attacked and the historicity of the Gospels has always been attacked. And so the way you do this is you just impose your ideas on, on the text. And that's exactly what's happening with the Israelites at the time of the judges. They're forgetting God. Fourth, by destroying history and objectivity of, and the objectivity of meaning in history, you destroy man. By that, I mean you destroy humanity you destroy the humanness that is related to what's left of the image of God. And this is what happened in, in the communist regimes. This is what happened with the Nazis as they destroy the humanity of the human race. And that's what's happening today. That, I, I think you can see a lot of this in the, the manipulations that occurred and all of the lies and propaganda that took place during the COVID pandemic. I'm not denying that there was, a, that there was a, a pandemic. I just learned from a friend who came from the Middle East that she knew nine people who died from it. And so I'm not denying that. I'm just denying the narrative that they gave. I'm denying the way they handle that in imposing controls on people. We've never had that level of control imposed on people worldwide. This is extremely uh, dangerous. But if you don't have a God on the throne who controls things, then man has to control uh, everything. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that says that a country that is absorbed with the present ignores the past, and it will destroy their future. Ignoring history is extremely dangerous in rewriting it. Uh, Fifth, in um, postmodernism, typo there, it should be just, in postmodernism, the big evil is Western civilization. So Europe uh, is denigrated and all other cultures are elevated so that you had multiculturalism. All the cultures are equal, whether you were an Aborigine in Australia or whether you were uh, sacrificing infants in the ancient Middle East or whether you were uh, living in a Stone Age culture in Erie Jaya, all cultures are equal. But see, that changed with the critical social justice worldview. Now, if you're white, you're evil. By definition, you are a racist because you don't believe their narrative of their made-up history. That's what it comes down to. It is much more insidious than anything that we have had uh, come along to attack our society, our culture in Uh, I think in history, it is setting the stage, I believe, for what will happen uh, after the rapture. I don't know when the rapture is going to occur, but this is just another thing that is being laid down to prepare people for for the rapture. And so what they're doing with this critical social justice uh, worldview by dividing people up uh, and making all white Europeans racist is that they are creating... Uh, division, hostility, distrust, uh, uh, suspicion. And this is the same methodology that was followed by the Bolsheviks in uh, Russia and by the communists in China in order to break down the unity of the civilization and get people angry and hating each other because of the old adage, divide and conquer. And so once you create division and suspicion in a culture, then it is easy to attack them. Sixth point, historians locate the ultimate cause of, uh, cause in, of history inside history, not outside. By this, uh, I mean it's the, they will say the ultimate cause of history is economic, the ultimate cause of history is politics or the ultimate cause of history is war, or trade, or weather. And so you have all of the ecological uh, theories that are going on. But all of these deny the sovereignty and the providence of God, that God is working, he controls history, he controls the environment, he oversees politics. If you read a book I've mentioned a few times, um, the Liberation Trilogy by what's Rick At- Atkinson on World War II, uh, because he had access to all kinds of information that finally was uh, no longer a secret, you discover just the huge number of mis- significant logistical errors that the Allies had, I mean, they should have never gotten even a foothold into, into Africa at the beginning of the war, but they did. Why? Because the sovereignty of God refrained and restrained the Germans. And God, God did, not because America had their act together, because they, they didn't. It was one failure after another. And this continued all through World War II. It is the providence of God that controls history. It is not things inside of creation that control uh, history. So we historians are starting from on the wrong foot to begin with. They have denied the existence and the providence of God. So what's happened is we have exchanged the historically active, objective God of the Bible... For the emotionally energizing, exciting God, lowercase, the self of postmodernism, an idol of our own feelings, emotions, and whims. This is what's going on. This is your neighbors, maybe your parents, maybe your kids. That's what they, that's what they've done. To understand this helps us understand why it seems like everything is going crazy. One of the better known, significant, uh, modernist historians is Frederick Braudel. Uh, And he has written, Men do not make history, which he wrote in his book, The Identity of France. Rather, it is history above all that makes men and absolves them of all blame. See, this is uh, an example of modern history. Uh, where um, professors are influenced by men of stature like Browdell, and they see that, that it is history that that makes men. It's some external cause. It is not human responsibility. It is not human volition. It is ultimately these other forces that act upon men, uh, that makes them do what they do and absolves them of all blame that 's a violation of the first divine institution, a personal uh, personal re- responsibility and Once you deny and reject human volition and then human personality and the value of the individual human being is no longer the issue. He's no longer the causative factor in history. It's something else. It's weather, it's geography, it's natural resources. And I'm not saying they, they don't play a part, but it is the overriding hand of God that rules in human history, not these uh, factors that are part of of uh, God's, God's creation. And so all of this takes us to that passage I've mentioned several times, Romans 1, 18 to 22. And I just want to close by by reading this. Romans 1, 18 says that the wrath of God, that is God's judgment, God's justice against man for violating his righteousness, the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It is the who suppress is describing the men who are uh, the recipients of this divine judgment. Why? Because what may be known about God is manifest in them. Intuitively, every human being is created with the knowledge that God exists. And he, when he becomes aware of that, that's what we call God consciousness. And it may be when they're two years old, maybe when they're five years old, maybe when they're 15 or 20 years old. It's going to be different depending on the culture, the family, the circumstances, the situation. You take a kid. You've heard me use some examples. You take a kid to a Good News Club uh, every week, and by the time they are. Uh, two or three years old and they've heard the gospel a hundred times they're going to ask their mother well why can't i be saved you ask all the other kids and i uh, was uh, talking with a man who does programming dan uh, down at um, uh, some of you have met his parents i can't remember their name now but they were the cef directors here in houston and worked with us when we were uh, developing cef things and he heard his mother Uh, Giving good news, teaching good news clubs, giving the gospel. And when he was uh, two to three years of age, he trusted Christ as his Savior. But that's a different environment than somebody who grows up in a secular pagan home and never hears the word God except something that is said in vain, some profane, profane statement. So this verse tells us that God is manifest in everyone. You're not witnessing to anybody, no matter how hard the shell is, they know deep down, and God the Holy Spirit can use that. Uh, So all you have to do is be faithful in explaining the gospel the best you can, because God the Holy Spirit's the one who makes it clear and who is going to be convicting them. Verse 20 says, "...for since the creation of the world His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Every human being is without excuse because God says they knew it internally. And then they have the external witness as well. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. That's the Israelites. That's the pagans in the Old Testament. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened professing to be wise, claiming to be geniuses, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So this is what man does. And I got this quote from Charlie Clough uh, from... I don't didn't catch who said it. It was an Oxford history professor who, said to, who wrote that to me the test of a good history book is not so much whether the past is verifiably reconstructed. See, what he's saying is facts are unimportant, irrelevant, they're dull, and there, there's not really any truth. So he's saying whether it's not whether the past is verifiably reconstructed and cogently expounded as whether it is convincingly imagined and vividly evoked. He's got to tell a good story whether it's true or not doesn't matter. That's what he is saying. So when once we sacrifice civilization on the Uh, you know, we sacrifice truth on the altar of our own ego and our own civilization, then what we also do is we are sacrificing God. And that is what will destroy a culture. And that's what we're seeing develop in in, in the analysis of what went on during the period of the judges. But there's always hope because God always meets, he met the Israelites where they were every single time. It didn't matter how degraded and perverted they had become. That when they cried out to God, and it doesn't even say there, I think in many cases they did repent because of a passage in Samuel, which we'll get to. But in Judges, it never mentions that. Sometimes they did, some didn't. But God always delivered them. He sent a deliverer, and he rescued them and blessed them. Not because of anything they did, but because of God's own love. And so that means that no matter how degraded the culture becomes, we can always have hope. That's what Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3. This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect on these things, to be reminded that every, every detail in history is important, Uh, may not be as important as other things, but everything is important because it's real, it's part of your plan, part of your history is the outworking of your plan, and help us to have more of a divine viewpoint on history, what has happened in the past, and what is happening today, to think about all of life, from the vantage point of your providence, your sovereignty, and your orchestration of events to bring about the maximum glory for yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.